Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Okay. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're starting with a new step here this evening, step number 11, on talkativeness and silence. And uh, if you remember, he's been talking about, and we've been talking about slander and calumny. And so uh, he moves uh, quite smoothly then to, into talking about uh, not guarding our speech and the importance of being attentive to the things we say and remaining silent uh, rather than giving voice to everything that comes to mind. And so again, we're on page 129 of the text at the very bottom. In the preceding chapter, we spoke briefly of how extremely dangerous it is to judge others, or rather to be judged and punished by one's own tongue, and of how this vice steals into even the most apparently spiritual people. Now we must show the cause of this vice and give a proper account of the door by which it enters or rather goes out. So very quickly and from the beginning, uh, uh, tells us that slander, calumny and such sins of speech uh, come from our inability uh, to guard our, our mouths, that uh, our hearts might be stirring with various thoughts, and we might be feeling angry and frustrated, but where the battle begins is by remaining silent. Paragraph two, talkativeness is the throne of vainglory on which it loves to show itself and make a display. Talkativeness is a sign of ignorance, a door of slander, an inducement to jesting, a servant of falsehood, the ruin of compunction, a creator and summoner of despondency, a precursor of sleep, the dissipation of recollection, the abolition of watchfulness, the calling of ardor, and the darkening of prayer. Uh, quite a list there uh, that John gives us, and uh, even while setting it up for us, he shows us the importance here of, of not giving ourselves over to talking as much as we do. Not only does it create a kind of vainglory, uh, focusing in upon ourselves, what we want others to hear us say, but it also uh, has an effect upon our hearts. It's in so many ways like opening, constantly opening the furnace door, if you will. And so the cooling of our ardor, of our desire for God, can come through our constantly talking not only about the spiritual life, but anything whatsoever. The ruin of compunction, uh, the creator and summoner of despondency, uh, which is surprising too. So that when we lose our watchfulness and we lose our attentiveness, uh, to God, then we begin talking about others or about the things of the world that can create a kind of uh, a deep sorrow or darkness or spirit of depression, spiritually or emotionally within us. And, uh, and so holding on to the silence, not only in terms of what we say, but I think in general, holding on to silence and stillness of heart is something that brings with it a kind of peace that allows us to remain recollected. Uh, an interesting one, precursor of sleep, uh, that the more we become dissipated through our speech, 
the more we are sort of lulled then into a kind of laziness, if you will, uh, where a kind of slumber comes over us. And so instead of being focused upon prayer and being attentive to God, being attentive to what's going on within our hearts, that dissipation then uh, expends a kind of energy that then leads us to uh, slip out of consciousness altogether. And uh, not that taking a nap is a bad thing, but I, I think when we are constantly uh, engaging others it is expending a kind of energy that could otherwise be directed toward god and towards the things of god and uh and so it can make our fulfilling the labors that we've been given our our obedience if you will something that's more difficult because we lose our focus he compares this then to what he describes as intelligent silence and um so the silence that arises out of a, a pure heart or the noose that has been purified, the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul through the ascetic light. And so he writes, intelligent silence is the mother of prayer, a recall from captivity, preservation of fire, the, an overseer of thoughts, a watch against enemies, a prison of mourning, a friend of tears, effective remembrance of death, a depictor of punishment, a delver into judgment, a minister of sorrow, an enemy of freedom of speech, a companion of stillness, an opponent of desire to teach, increase of knowledge, a creator of divine vision, unseen progress and secret ascent. So much there. Uh, I think to unpack, uh, certainly some of them I think are clear to us that it would be the mother of prayer, that our stillness and our silence would give rise to a deepening of our prayer and a, a, a constant recollection or recall of the times that we've lost our freedom through our sinfulness and the ways that we've found ourselves in deep bondage. So a recall uh, from captivity, but also uh, 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 calling us out of that captivity by drawing us into that relationship with God. An overseer of thoughts, watch against enemies. And so it allows us to, to be more attentive. The still our hearts become, and the more still our thoughts become, the more we're able to be attentive to what's going on around us. A prison for mourning. And so we've talked quite a bit here in the past about compunction, uh, this re remembrance of, of one's own sins and the turning uh, from them toward God, uh, this deep penitence and contrition that draws us back to him. And constantly talking uh, is obviously going to be something that uh, that dissipates that within us, that we are going to naturally focus upon other things, or that something that appeals to our sensibilities uh, far more, uh, a friend of tears. So when we are able to remain uh, within our hearts and be attentive to these things, we're also able then to experience the gift of this tears that washes away our sins, 
effective remembrance of death, a depictor of punishment, the delver into judgment, the minister of sorrow, the enemy of freedom of speech. So the first things is the first four there, three or four, would be the remembrance of the, the last things that our deep immersion in silence allows us to be attentive to our ultimate destiny, not only our dignity in Christ, but that we will stand before God for a judgment and that all that has been within our minds and our hearts will be revealed in the, the full light of truth. And so when we, again, when we aren't distracting ourselves or dissipating our, ourselves through speech, we can be more attentive to these things. An enemy of freedom of speech. Uh, it's not as though, you know, John is seeking to take away our precious gifts of freedom, but uh, we have grown so used to articulating everything and anything that comes to mind, any feeling, any thought, whether or not it's the fruit of deep contemplation or simply something that comes to mind. And uh, the, the greater the number of arenas for that becomes, uh, the, the, the less uh, attentive and watchful we become, I think, uh, in terms of contemplating whether or not we should really say something or, or write it down. Especially now when it's once it's on social media, it's there forever. And so things that you've uh, written down or posted have a, a way of coming back at you, as we've seen so many times, uh, I think, in the news where people th that have written things years ago, they come back to, to haunt them, that they've articulated thoughts, perhaps without much thought a companion of stillness, an opponent of desire to teach, uh, which is an interesting one. I think when, uh, when there is this kind of urge to make oneself the teacher of others, that there is a danger, and we've seen it very frequently, and that it can uh, be a powerful source of uh, self-esteem and vanity, I think when one becomes recognized as uh, a great teacher or one having you know, great intellectual ability or oratorical skills, that, uh, that there is this temptation then to put oneself out there and to respond to every request that is given. Whereas John is saying, what we find with intelligent silence is uh, opposition to that kind of desire that is rooted in, in vanity. That uh, even in the writing of the Ladder of Divine Ascent, it was through a continual, continual pressure from a, a neighboring abbot uh, that John agrees to, to do this. And uh, some of this is rooted in his personal experience too, that he, was known as John the, uh, the Scholastic, that his knowledge of the fathers and the scriptures was very deep. And he had lived a life of uh, isolation and deep prayer, but people were coming out to him for spiritual guidance and a certain jealousy began to grow and murmuring against him. And so to put a check on himself, you know, concerned that perhaps 
there might be some truth to that critique. He vows silence uh, from that point on until, and until then those from the monastery, in fact, his very critics uh, came and then begged him to, uh, to, to let go of this vow of silence and to take up that position of teaching again. And eventually we know also that he's made abbot uh, of the monastery. Uh, but even as great of a teacher as he was and his uh, heart so pure that he knew that he could be blind, I think, to this kind of vain glory as well. And in the face of the criticism, he doesn't become defensive, but rather takes upon himself a discipline to put it to the test uh, over, over the course of time. Uh, increase of knowledge that... Um, Often when we are constantly chattering about something, we aren't giving ourselves much time to contemplate what it is that we're studying or that we, we begin to read things very quickly uh, in this uh, consumeristic kind of fashion uh, to take hold as much of as much information as we can in order then that we can share it in conversations or use it in conversations. And, uh, and so the, the silence that John is talking about here is something that isn't only an opponent to that freedom of speech that gives uh, voice to every, everything that we're reading. But John says, no, we would keep it within our hearts in order that we might contemplate it on a, a deeper level and allow God to reveal what it is that he desires us to see and understand. And uh, I think as we read this, it's important. You know, it's great that we have these groups and that we can have these podcasts and talk about what John is writing. But what we would gain from uh, taking a few or even a, a single uh, saying here of John and using it as our Lexio Divina and sitting in silence with it would have far greater value in terms of what would emerge through, through deep prayer. Uh, because it's not only what you know, our reason is sort of unpacking for us, but it's what God is revealing to us in and through the gift of faith, and also what he desires us to understand or what we need to see or to hear. And, uh, and so if we never have that silence, and we're reading again only for information, then we uh, might not be gaining the full fruit of this, nor internalizing it in such a way that it changes and alters our life. Again, you know, that's one of the reasons that we do take the slow pace. And sometimes I don't think it's slow enough, given you know some of the things that we read and how challenging they are that we do well to go, go back over them again and again. And so even looking to the future, you know, with Philokalia Ministries and with these studies, uh, I think in some measure it's important to go back over certain text. Um, you remember there's this quote from, I think it's uh, Elder Emilianos says that those th the three greatest texts, Evergetinos, the Ladder of Divine Ascent, and sacred scripture, that these are the three most important. And, uh, and so our willingness, you know, not simply to go through them once, 
but to really have them be a study source of nourishment for us, I think is important. Uh, Eric writes, my translation says foe of license instead of enemy of freedom of speech. Yeah, that gives, uh, I think, a nice insight into it. You know, uh, a foe of license then in how we do talk given on a given day, that we don't give ourselves free reign in that regard. Any other comments on this section so far? Very good, everybody's being very silent and not talking. Okay. He, let's see, there's still a few more here. Creator of divine vision, unseen progress, secret ascent. So, you know, the, the silence and are willing to maintain it uh, and not lose that dissipation allows us again to come to see things as God desires us to see them, to wait upon God, rather than to take hold of our own understanding as if we have a kind of clarity about whether it's sacred scripture or what John is writing, that we would wait upon the Lord for him to reveal, again, what he desires us to see and to understand. Uh, unseen progress. So if, you know, sometimes we can judge others and judge ourselves as making progress in the spiritual life by what we know, the things that we know about church history or theology or liturgy or spirituality, and our uh, caution and putting ourselves out there as being experts in a particular field, uh, then allows that progress we make in the spiritual life to, to remain hidden and in a providential way, so that we uh, have no illusions about ourselves. We're not trying to make you know, uh, a, a judgment about where we stand within the spiritual life, that we are satisfied with the light that God gives us that allows us to take one step forward. And so not trying to judge for ourselves. Uh, secret ascent, so similar. Uh, to the previous one, that uh, we, God may elevate us in our understanding of certain things in ways that we do not see, and do that in order to protect us in the spiritual life. Uh, that sometimes it can become a danger if we see something that we've come to understand or embrace or see something about our spiritual life and then become overly focused upon it, again, rather than doing it or living it. Okay, anything about any of these strike anyone? Okay. Number four, he who has become aware of his sins has controlled his tongue but a talkative person has not yet come to know himself as he should. So, you know, the silence again allows us to, to direct our attention where it needs to be directed. And that is upon ourselves. 
and a growth in self-knowledge rather than directing it outwards towards others. And when there is a kind of talkativeness, uh, there's a kind of natural movement. We're stepping out of ourselves and, and a kind of ecstasy. We, we're going out of ourselves and sharing what is within our own minds and our hearts. Uh, but And that movement can lead us then to make judgments about what others are saying or about what they are doing, rather than, again, keeping our focus where it needs to be. And, uh, and so a talkative person, he says, has not come to know himself as he should, uh, that uh, he might know, you know, a, a lot from, you know, his conversations with others, and a lot about them are, again, the things of the world, but know absolutely nothing about himself, have no self-knowledge. And, you know, in a time like ours, the information age, you know, I think we can get into this sense of things that if we are in the know, if we have access to more and more knowledge and have access to others and what others are thinking, that we're going to be better for it. And uh, that's not necessarily true. There can be blessings that can be found in it, but there can be also dangers that can become distortions. Uh, you know, the kinds of conversations can fall into exactly what we discussed about in the previous step, you know, calumny and slander, and really not lead us into any depth of self-knowledge or knowledge of God, but really lead us into deeper sinfulness. And so we have to be very guarded and, and cautious about our, our use of these things. Okay. The friend of silence draws near to God and by secretly conversing with him is enlightened by God. And so if God, our Lord is the light of the world and, and if silence is the language of, of the kingdom and the language of God and that he communicates to us in and through the gift of our faith and uh, in the darkness of that and that he illuminates our heart more through our, our love of him and of our gift of ourselves to him then uh, silence is going to be something that we love and and seek to foster within ourselves because it uh, we're, it's not an escape from the world, but it's, uh, it allows us to enter into a greater intimacy with the Lord. So part of it, again, is tied to our desire for him. If our desire for God is deep, then we are going to want to cultivate that silence, knowing that it's there that we encounter him the most. Again, beyond uh, the understanding of the reason and of, of the intellect, but allowing our understanding to come through encounter, through experience. Peter, having said a word, lamented bitter, I'm sorry, I missed one there. Number six, the silence of Jesus put Pilate to shame and by a man's stillness, vainglory is vanquished. So he's making reference here to, uh, you know, Pilate seeking to engage him about what is truth, uh, even though he has he who is truth standing before him, and uh, and 
so John says it is the silence of Christ that puts uh, Pilate to shame because on some level, he's already making a judgment uh, as so many others had as well about who it is that's standing before him. You know, obviously this man is no threat. Uh, you know, that his disciples have all scattered. He's been scourged and beaten. Uh, uh, seems uh, not to be a, a man who is much of a threat to, to Caesar. And, uh, and so his silence, his unwillingness to be drawn into this philosophical, this philosophical discussion about truth, in a sense, shames Pilate that it reveals something about the character uh, of Pilate, that uh, where his mind goes, you know, is it mockery of Christ who's standing before him having been, you know, dressed in purple robes and having been crowned with thorns and whipped, you know, to seek to engage him then in a discussion about truth. And, uh, as if, you know, somehow he is desiring to protect Christ. Vicky writes, would this silence include, and I miss Bonnie here, I'll get back to you. Would this silence include silencing inner chatter and your thoughts, or is it external silence? It's a good question. I think the external silence typically precedes the internal. The more that we can create a, uh, an environment that, uh, isn't filled with chatter, where the television is turned off or the radio and we're able to sit in the physical silence, then we can see what is with greater clarity what's going on within our mind. And then through our prayer, move towards this internal silence as well, through the use of these arrow prayers that the fathers speak of, you know, to gently set the thoughts aside and to redirect the mind and the heart uh, to God. And uh, often they will say to allow the mind to descend into the heart where God dwells and his spirit dwells. And uh, so this is what we are seeking, you know, not just an, an emptiness. What we are seeking is this encounter with the fullness that dwells internally that God has given us in multiple ways through the gift of his own spirit uh, but also through the voice of conscience, uh, that in and through our silence, we're able to be more and more attentive to the ways that God communicates himself and his truth to us. Bonnie writes, this is why adoration before the Blessed Sacrament is such a beautiful gift where silence is filled with God's love for us. I agree, you know, that there, you know, is within adoration uh, something very powerful and that I've encountered people experiencing who aren't even Catholic and have no awareness of, uh, of the presence of Christ within the monstrance who happen to come into a chapel where adoration is taking place and the stillness of that place, but also the focus of the individuals within the chapel uh, is Often, often profoundly moving to them. But what, what is going on here? What is taking place within this silence uh, that seems to be uh, almost a waste of time, uh, I think, to the world? And uh, 
the place where I had been had perpetual adoration. And it was always a striking thing to me, a striking contrast, because right in the middle of the university community uh, and the busiest part of the city is this little chapel that seats less than 100 people where there can be this intense silence that one enters into. And it's a beautiful thing uh, to have that as a, a refuge uh, to be able to step out of the, you know, the constant noise of the city and to move to that place of stillness very quickly. And uh, certainly it's not the only place. I think we all have, you know, our rooms, our prayer corners, these special places for us that offer us that stillness. Okay. Number seven. Peter, having said a word, lamented it bitterly because he forgot him who said, I said, I will take heed to my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. And the other who said, a fall from a height to the ground is better than a slip with the tongue. And uh, so from the Psalms and from Sirach there that, uh, you know, speaking of just how destructive a slip of the tongue can be and making reference here to Peter's denial of the Lord, you know, when pressed uh, by his own fear and anxiety, utters a word that he probably never imagined that he could, uh, which was the denial of Christ and for which he wept bitterly that, uh, like Sirach says, it would be better to fall from the height, uh, height to the ground than for something like that to happen. And I think in some ways we've all had that kind of experience where we blurted something out uh, in a moment of anger or frustration or just a lack of watchfulness where we've said something that we know has wounded another or that was insensitive. Uh, to them in one fashion or another. That was a sin against charity. Number eight, I do not wish to write much about this, even though the wiles of the passions urged me to do so. But I once heard from someone who asked me about stillness, that talkativeness is invariably born of one of the following causes either from a bad, lax way of life and habit, for the tongue, said he, being a member of the body, like the rest of the members, requires the training of habit, or again, in the case of ascetics, garrulity comes especially from vainglory and sometimes from gluttony. That is why many who bridle the stomach by force easily, afterwards easily check the tongue and its chatter. So interesting here that uh, two things he speaks about, habit, that uh, restraining our speech and fostering this silence is not something that necessarily comes naturally to us, that a person by temperament might be more reserved, uh, but to really foster the kind of intelligent silence that he's referring to here requires a habit of virtue that we 
constantly watch and review, examine the, uh, ourselves on a daily basis. You know, how did I use this gift of speech or misuse it? Uh, did I use it in a way that built up others or was for others good? Or did I use it to wound? As a, did I use it as a weapon? And the other, he says, in the case of ascetics, is that uh, garrulity, you know, this kind of jesting uh, comes from a kind of vainglory, a focus upon oneself, this perception of oneself as being uh, of hum humorous, uh, he says, arises from vainglory, but uh, also sometimes from gluttony that are... Uh, being unrestrained in this appetite leads then to a lack of restraint in our speech. And again, you know, there can be certain things that strike us as humorous, and there's nothing sinful about that, uh, and strike us as being funny about others. And again, there's nothing sinful about that. But sometimes we will pick that up and uh, use it in such a way where we become dissipated or we lead others to become dissipated. And for ascetics, we could see why this would be a problem. If the focus is really on mourning, of compunction, of fostering unceasing prayer and remembrance of God, then it's going to be an enormous problem for them. Uh, and it's going to also be disturbing those around them that are seeking that silence if they're constantly chattering. Benedict Rochelle talks about this once in a book where he was on a train and uh, there was somebody sitting next to him that chattered about absolutely nothing for hours. And so his whole train, uh, his whole train trip, he thought, you know, I would read or write something or maybe even take a little nap. But the full trip was filled with the constant uh, chatter of the person sitting next to him and yet and he compares this to you know sometimes having a few words from a wise soul you know uh, fills the mind and the heart with a richness uh, that uh, is sometimes surprising to us you know, it can be one word from someone that offers peace or uh, a little gem of wisdom that carries us through the day. Number nine, he who is anxious about his departure cuts down words, and he who has obtained spiritual mourning shuns talkativeness like fire. So the focus upon our departure from this world, the brevity of life, is also going to make us uh, look at our thoughts and our speech and guard them in, in the way that St. Paul talks about taking every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That uh, if we simply fill our life with chatter, either, either the chatter of others or our own, then are we depriving ourselves from that which is truly nourishing and life-giving? Uh, we're depriving ourselves from being nourished upon the word of God itself. And, uh, you know, I, I think the media, you know, for a long time and our use of it 
can do that. You know, that often the television is on or the radio is on uh, in the background or if we get in the car, we'll you know, often turn on the radio. Uh, I stopped that years ago uh, just because I became conscious of that, primarily through readings like this, that that's almost like a natural habit to jump in the car and turn something on, the news or, or music, rather than allowing ourselves uh, to abide in that silence. And uh, in the early days of cell phones, my dad was asked, because he was like a district manager and on the road a lot between offices and was asked if he, you know, why, why doesn't he have a cell phone where people could get a hold of him while he's traveling? And his answer was, I don't want one. You know, this is like the one place where I uh, get some solitude and some, some silence. I don't want to fill my time of driving uh, in between these offices with, you know, constant conversation with others. Because rarely is it an emergency, you know, that has to be dealt with right at that moment. My dad was a very wise man in that regard. Uh, let's see, he who has come to love stillness shuts his mouth, but he who delights in wandering about outside is driven out of his cell by his passion. So the, the person who loves stillness is from the, and this in particular for monks, I think we can see it with a greater clarity from the moment that they wake, that they are going to enter into that and prize it and seek to protect it is that which is precious. Uh, but the one who is given over to chatter, he says is going to be driven out of the cell by a passion that there's going to be this constant desire to enter into conversation with others, to step out of the silence to which they've dedicated themselves and or to you know, be moved by what they hear going on around the cell. So standing by the window or the door, listening to conversations that are taking place and filling that pool to go out and engage others rather than to stay focused again upon one's task and holding on to the silence. And finally, number 11, he who knows the fragrance of the fire from on high runs from a concourse of men like a bee from smoke. For as the bee is routed by smoke, so is man hampered by company. So it's an interesting image you know, that one who uh, has an awareness of judgment is aware of the, as he says, of the fire from on high, is is going to avoid, uh, you know, these great concourses of, of men, you know, gathered together. Uh, because he knows that if he enters into that, he's going to be hampered, uh, you know, certainly for a monk. But I, I think if any of us have been in a room full of people, uh, uh, you know, I've been at these, you know, like social gatherings and even church gatherings, you know, where it's, you know, a fundraiser or a reception after an event. 
when everyone is talking and it's so loud, it's, it's like geese squawking. That's what my experience of it is. And it, is almost, it becomes painful and agitating. And, uh, and it's you know, something that you want, I just gotta get out of here. <laughs> gotta get out of this room. And uh, there's one place, I and mean, we used to take students at the end of the year who were student leaders to it. It was called Dave and Busters. Are you guys familiar with that? I don't know if that's a nationwide kind of place, but it's, uh, we would take them out to dinner, but it was a, a place of video games. So in the background, there were all these mechanical sounds that were taking place. So over the course of that evening, you could feel yourself becoming more and more agitated by that. Uh, and that there's something unnatural about it. And, uh, and so we stopped doing that <laughs> after the first year or so and started finding some other things to, to do, do with them. Uh, but, you know, I think often the this, this silence and not talking at first seems painful. And uh, it might feel awkward to us too. I think there is the sense that we have to be constantly engaged in uh, discussion. And it's hard at times for us to simply be with another in silence. Sometimes we see something beautiful emerge in marriages and relationships with couples where they know them know each other so well that they can find a kind of comfort and joy uh, simply in taking a walk or even a ride in a car through the country. And there might be no conversation that's taking place, but it can be one of the things that are, they most enjoy doing. And part of that comes from uh, this mutual knowledge of the other, this deep knowledge and love of, of the other, that you almost don't want the words to spoil the moment. And that can be true too when we are someplace where we are, uh, where the scenery is beautiful, where we're in the country or near a lake or the ocean, you know, it's not a place where you want to say, gee, isn't that beautiful? And then start having this deep discussion about it. You want to enter into that moment. Uh, you know, I imagine someplace like Meteora, those monasteries on top of those rock cliffs, or even here in the States, the Grand Canyon, you know, there must be something that's mesmerizing or captivating about that, that you wouldn't want uh, the word, you know, words to sort of disturb the experience of that or some you know traveling through Italy and seeing some of the beautiful churches there's a similar thing the the depth of the of the silence that emerges there part of it is because one is caught up in the beauty of that moment Ambrose writes my in-laws feel that we that way about visiting here the kiddos are constant background buzzing you can get acclimated. That's true. I think parents get very used to that experience. Their threshold is uh, a little bit better than for those who aren't used to it. And uh, so I think that does develop. That must be a grace from on high, uh, I think, that, that is given uh, to endure it. Uh, Eric writes, how do we in the world balance silence with the cultivation of valuable relationships in life? For example, at work or whatever. 
In other words, how do we discern the threshold of silence to maintain? There is the absolute silence of the monk and the rambling of the garrulous. Where do we draw the line? It's a great question. You know, I think uh, we would want, you know, to, in our relationships with others, to be discerning. And one of the prophets says, you know, that one might have many acquaintances, but one in a thousand as a confidant. And, you know, for one with whom we would share things about the spiritual life, maybe it's one in a million, I don't know. Uh, but uh, we, I think we are to be discerning about that. And uh, what kind of relationship are we cultivating and seeking? And there are certain things that work you know, where there is a kind of conversation that is part of the, the daily movement of the office and natural, and that one can enter into that uh, and to, to foster those relationships with those with whom you work. Uh, and sometimes I think our life, if it's filled with that, then there can be a deeper need for silence that we cultivate in order to help us be discerning and to enter into that well. And so in a sense, you know, a priest who has an active ministry and, uh, but more importantly, one who's in the confessional a lot or one who's offering spiritual counsel uh, and maybe doing that for hours on day, hours, you know, hours upon hours on a given day, I think would have to balance that with an equal or if not greater amount of silence where they are listening to God. So that what is being talked about simply is again, not being perceived through our own private judgment, but being seen or heard in the way that God desires, uh, desires for us. And, uh, and so, you know, if the reality of our day-to-day -day life requires that of us, then I think we, we really want to foster a kind of stillness and silence in our life in order that we can regain our, our focus upon God. And I think this is why we're also called to this constant remembrance of God throughout the course of the day too. So if on a surface level, our attention is demanded that the unceasing calling upon God, especially using the Jesus prayer, is taking place of drawing us in uh, to the life and love of God and his grace so that our, even though we are fixed in our attention upon some activity, it's still being guided and directed by the grace of God and our awareness of his presence. And, uh, and so again, in, in so many ways, I think in the world, the ascetic life is every bit as necessary for us as it is for the monk living in the monastery. And in many ways, I think they have, they have these structures that allow them to protect that monastery. I'm sorry, that, that quiet st and stillness where prayer can emerge. I think we living in the world have to cultivate it. We have to create a rule of life that allows us to have what we need in order that we might listen to God. 
and the busier we become, you know, I think that was Francis de Sales that said that, you know, if, you know, you should pray an hour a day, and if you're busy, you should pray two hours a day. And so I think basically he's saying the same thing, you know, if you're if your life is demanding, you should not be cutting away that uh, time of prayer with God, but really finding ways to cultivate it. So simplifying your, your life in such a way that it allows that to be the reality. And we've talked about that many times before that there might be sacrifices that are required to make that possible that we might have, we can't constantly be adding things to our life without removing something. If we desire to have that and hold on to that, which is most important to us. And so if we are, if we do, you know, if we're a married person and have a family and have kids to take care of and a job, then, you know, filling our life to the point that we are running from thing to thing and transporting kids from thing to thing and where the life becomes frenetic and sort of passes us by and we're drawn along by those realities i don't i don't necessarily think that's a healthy existence you know uh growing up i played sports and things like that but i wasn't involved in you know a half a dozen things at the same time and i think in our day and age busyness and uh, you know, being exposed to as many things as you possibly can is seen as a kind of virtue or even necessity. And I think we do harm to ourselves, certainly. And we do harm to children very early on in their life when we press them into that. You know, children need a lot of time when they play and do nothing, when they're playing in the mud and they're creating things with their own imagination and, uh, and where they're not being forced into these programmatic kind of uh, root, routines in their day-to-day -day life, seeking to get an edge over others. Because I, I think then we destroy this capacity to uh, wonder at the realities of the world. We destroy this capacity for imagination by thrusting them into a controlled environment. We need space. Think back about it. You know, some of those greatest times were like playing, you know, my parents were putting in a patio once and they had a load of sand delivered and this huge mound of it. And that sort of captivated the children of the neighborhood for, you know, month on end until the project was done, you know, creating a little town or, you know, and those are precious moments. And, uh, and I know I've mentioned this before, but artists and writers often will mention that, that they, they need that silence where they're not pressing themselves to work for, you know, something to strike them. You know, uh, and uh, the in order that you know this kind of creativity can emerge, sitting down at the typewriter, forcing themselves to do it isn't necessarily going to be the best thing. 
I think people even working at home, you know, I think there's been more of a movement towards that. And I don't, I think people are holding on to that, not because they just want to avoid having to get, engage people, but I think there is a lot of wasted time uh, that takes place there that one becomes aware that you, that you are losing by being involved in a certain kind of culture or office culture, that sometimes one can do one's work, but then be more present to one's family, but then to other things as well that have greater value. And so it was interesting coming out of COVID where pe people were pressed into that, finding that all of a sudden they, they didn't want to go back to that. Like being able to be present and around their children more, you know, it's held you know, out a greater value there. Any other comments? Oh, uh, Deborah writes, I wear hearing aids, but only if I'm going somewhere I have to listen, like mass or meetings. As soon as I'm out of that meeting, I take out my aids because the world is such a noisy place. <laughs> uh, way to see on the, <clears throat> look at things on the bright side. Uh, I understand that, you know, that there, <laughs> the world can be an incredibly noisy place. And the strange thing about it is that we can get acclimated to it, sort of what Ambrose said, but not necessarily in a good way. That uh, I mentioned here that I lived in the city for 40 years before moving out to my present assignment. And it was amazing uh, that this is like a little hermitage where I'm living now. And uh, surprisingly, right near Kennywood Park, uh, which is an amusement park. But nonetheless, it's very quiet. But I lived in the city where all the universities are, but also all the hospitals. And I remember as a freshman living right next to one of the hospitals, and there were helicopters landing on the roof of the uh, hospital and ambulances all night long. And at first it was jarring. But over the course of time, it is funny how quickly we will acclimate to that, maybe not realizing the impact that that has over, over us or on us. And sort of what Deborah says here, you know, of being able to tune that out is something that she comes to value. Anthony writes, being someone who does work from home and lives alone, the silence does not feel too great all the time. Right. Only the deep silence when in my workshop or working in my kitchen or dining room or times like that is satisfying. Right. You know, there can be a, a kind of silence that is rooted in loneliness. And there are those who live in a kind of solitude or isolation that can be painful and leave them feeling cut off where perhaps there isn't uh, a spiritual life or where they don't have others in their life to uh, engage in a deep and loving relationship. And it was a frightening thing when I first heard about uh, how many elderly during COVID spent the entire time, it was like 30 million, spent that entire time in isolation. They, they saw no one for you know, a couple of years or however long it was. And uh, I imagine that for many, 
there were plenty of times like you describe here that can uh, where it sort of creates uh, you know this discomfort or feeling of loneliness or being disconnected and what we are called to is not an empty silence that the silence that we enter into is full it's pregnant it's filled with god and the love of god and uh, even when we don't feel it, it uh, our faith allows us to experience that. And so even if we experience a kind of loneliness and isolation, that that silence for us can be a, mo a moment of encounter with God or where God is very active in our life, as long as we, we do have that faith. That uh, because in, in reality, God is always present and present deep within. We're never in isolation. This is one of the extraordinary gifts that he's given to us, that uh, in that silence, it allows us and gives us what we crave for the most, which is intimacy and love. And so our call to silence is not just to avoid the things of this world. It's to allow our desire to pull us to what our hearts long for, the most. And again, you know, if we're cultivating a kind of silence that loses sight of that, then our asceticism is not going to bear fruit. You know, we could just as easily become an angry, bitter individual, you know, who is a hermit, but not in the good sense, you know, who's just sort of removed himself from society. There's an interesting movie not too long ago that Robert Duvall, I don't know if he wrote it as well. Uh, what was it called? Uh, I, I forget the name of it. It's a recent, it's one of his last films that he was in, but he had uh, committed a crime and he lived like for 40 years by himself in the woods thinking that he was engaged in a kind of repentance there, penance. And, but as he comes to the end of his life, he realizes that that it wasn't that, that wasn't the reality. That it was more of an avoidance for him. Oh, I wish I could remember the name of it. I, I don't re typically recommend Hollywood movies, but this was pretty good. So that brings us to 8.30, time for silence. Uh, so thank you all. It was a wonderful evening. And why don't we close as always with the Our Father. And before we do that again, just to, uh, to remind you that I did decide to go ahead and schedule that uh, talk on repentance for the 11th of March at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Okay. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May almost, Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all.